John chapter 3, a well-known, very beloved section of the Word of God, and rightfully so. John, the third chapter, I would like to preach on the two most prominent verses, I believe, in this third chapter of John, and they are not what you might expect. I suppose most of you would think that I'm talking about John 3.16, but I think far more important than John 3.16, which is, you'll notice, beginning with the word for, as we would say because, it's a word of explanation. What is being explained is what has just been uttered in verses 14 and 15. John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we have to be somewhat careful when we talk about our favorite verses. There was a thing circulating around on the Internet that was talking about uh, Vice President Gore on one of his campaign stops reading a speech that obviously had been prepared for him by one of his staff writers saying that when he was growing up, one of his favorite verses was John 16.3. Uh, they got it backwards. Uh, George McGinnis did a little research, found out it wasn't Al Gore that said that at all. It was George Bush. In fact, he received an email from the columnist Cal Thomas this past week where Cal says he was there. He heard it with his own ears when George Bush said those words. Show you what a dirty business politics is when you turn statements around trying to slander your opponent. But at any rate, we'd have to be careful. And I know many, many people's favorite verse in the Bible is John 3.16. But notice that John 3.16 is to be understood in a context. And the context, I think, is in fact the central feature of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. As we looked last week in the preceding verses where Jesus is in the midst of a discourse with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, apparently a representative of this group of people that we read about at the tail end of chapter 2. Men who believed on Jesus when they saw the miracles that he did. But something was wrong with their faith because the text goes on to say at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus did not commit himself unto them and needed not that any should testify what was in man because he knew what was in man. In other words, there's a deficiency in their heart believing as they did simply because of what they saw. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with exactly that kind of faith saying, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because no man could do these works, could do these miracles except God be with you. Gene Breed often says that uh, he thought he was a teacher sent from God rather than God come to teach. And there is a difference between those two things. And Jesus goes on to point out to Nicodemus that he doesn't even know which ends up. He, is, who's supposedly a teacher in Israel, does not understand the very first things about what really needs to happen, that unless he's born again, to use the words of our Lord, he will not see the kingdom. If he's not born of water and spirit, he will not enter the kingdom. Nicodemus is, of course, flustered by all of this, doesn't understand, and Jesus takes him to task for how is it that he does not understand, pointing out that this was something already that was already revealed on earth by the prophets, the need of the new birth, the need of what Ezekiel calls being washed with clean water, to be given, taken away a stony heart and given a new heart. 
to have God put his spirit within us, to cause us to do what he would have us do. Those things had already been taught by the prophet Ezekiel. Now that's sort of just sort of bringing us back up to speed. And at the very end of that conversation in verse 11 and 12 and 13, Jesus talks about a contrast between earthly things, things that had already been revealed by God through the prophets here on earth, and heavenly things, a new sort of revelation that Jesus himself was about to begin to give. And it would seem that in the context that perhaps what we read in our text this morning, verses 14 and 15, begins to sort of detail or give us some understanding of what is this new revelation, this new thing that's going to happen. The necessity of the new birth was revealed in the Old Testament. But the means of the new birth, how it would be accomplished, is now being revealed from the lips of our Lord. I have told you over and over, I said it in Sunday school this morning, I'll say it again, that the Old Testament furnishes us us the backdrop for understanding the New Testament. It gives us the vocabulary of the New Testament. If you want to know what words like priest or redemption, if you want to know what those words mean, go back to the Old Testament. There you will see them defined for you. But it also gives us sort of our, our, um, our, if we're talking about a play, the scenery, the setting of the New Testament is given to us by the Old Testament. And no better example could I give you than the words here of our Lord, where he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, you, if you don't know your Bible this morning, you may be sitting here saying, Preacher, what in the world are you talking about? What in the world does Jesus mean? If, Of course, there's some controversy about where exactly the words of Jesus end here. Some say they end in verse 11. Some say verse 13. Some say verse 15. I would say Jesus is speaking at least to verse 15 then it's possible that Jesus is speaking clear on down to verse 21. At some point here, it is not Jesus who is speaking, it is John sort of giving his commentary on the words of Jesus. But I think Jesus is definitely speaking down through our text this morning. He's the one who says, because he always uses this phrase, the Son of Man, to speak of himself. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's exactly how Jesus speaks throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. So I believe it is Jesus who is speaking. But you might say, what in the world are you talking about? Are you talking about snake handling? You know, I'm getting out of here if you're uh, bringing out the snakes this morning. What is this stuff about snakes? What's this stuff about Moses lifting up serpents in the wilderness? Well, of course, this takes us back, way back, to the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the Old Testament after they came out of Egypt after their failure to enter Canaan and the 40 years of testing and trials out there in the wilderness. If you will turn to Numbers chapter 21, you will find what Jesus is referencing here. Numbers chapter 21. In verse 4, we read, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I mean, that is their constant thing. I mean, from day one, when they're at the Red Sea, before they even get out of Egypt as the armies of Pharaoh, the first thing, Moses, you just brought us out here to kill us. 
And then God delivers them there. They get across the Red Sea. They're on the other side. They don't have anything to drink. There's no water. Moses, you just brought us out of here so we'd die of thirst. God provides them water. Now there's nothing to eat. Moses, you just brought us out here. You know, back in Egypt, at least we had something to eat. Over and over and over again, their utter unbelief, their utter distrust of the God who is daily providing for them and delivering them over and over again, it's never enough. And here they are again. It's a hard way. It's a difficult journey. And what do they utter? Well, you just brought us out here to die in the wilderness. He says, for there's no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. Now, they're talking about the manna. In other words, we're sick and tired of this stuff. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, in other words, among the people. Who sent them? The Lord sent them. And they bit the people. And much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, He lived. One of those miraculous things that occurred out there in the wilderness, and you see how God over and over again brought a problem upon them and then provided a remedy. When they thirsted, He provided the remedy of water from the rock. When they were hungry, He gave them manna. When they were weary, He gave them the Sabbath. Now, when they're being bitten by these poisonous snakes and dying, He gives them a remedy in this brass snake of all things that Moses puts on a pole in the midst of the camp and when they're bitten by the snake they are to look, simply look and behold the brass snake and they're healed. You might say, well that's just one of those myths, you know, every every people, every tribe on earth has their little mythology, their little magical stories. Well, you might think that about this, I suppose, except for the fact that we learn even in King Hezekiah's day, some 800 years later or so, that King Hezekiah, one of the reforms that he instituted was to take this brass snake because the Israelites had turned it into a religious relic and were worshiping it, and Hezekiah took it, ground it up into pieces, and called it Nehushtan, which meant brass snake. In other words, it was just a brass snake, and yet they wanted to worship it, as we are so prone to do. No, it was a real thing. It existed for several hundred years in the history of Israel. They knew where this brass snake was. They were very familiar with what went on back there in the wilderness. And now, out of nowhere, Jesus, as it were, resurrects this brass snake as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and they would instantly, Nicodemus, a master, a teacher of the Jews, teacher of the Old Testament, he instantly would know what Jesus was talking about. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This serpent in the wilderness is therefore a type. The Greek word typos sometimes means shadow. 
In other words, when I hold up my hand, I cast a shadow. There is the substance and then the shadow of the substance. The shadow is not the real thing. It's just a fuzzy picture. We sometimes use the term foreshadowing. This snake on the pole back there in the wilderness days was a foreshadowing of something. And in fact, Jesus is saying it's a foreshadowing of the Son of Man, which is His term He speaks of Himself so often in the Gospel of John. It's a foreshadowing of the Son of Man who must be lifted up. So the reality is the Son of Man being lifted up, but the shadow is this serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Now notice the correspondence between type... An antitype. Antitype meaning the fulfillment of the type. The real thing. The type's just the shadow. The foreshadowing. The antitype's the real thing. Notice the correspondence between the two. In the Old Testament, in Moses' day, they were dying of snake venom. In Jesus' day, they were dying of snake venom. But from another kind of snake. The real snake... That old serpent, the devil, the venom, meaning the entrance of sin into the life. In other words, in one case we have men dying physically. In another case, the real sense, in Jesus' day, men are dying spiritually. But they're both dying of a snake bite, if you will. And secondly, in the Old Testament age, in the days of Moses, he lifted up a serpent on a pole. So, in the New Testament, what Jesus is saying, God will lift up the Son of Man. In the Old Testament age, the dying were simply to look to receive life. Here, Jesus says that whosoever believes. Look, all right, but a different kind of look. Not a look with this eye, but the look, the eye of faith. They who believe. And in the Old Testament... These who looked receive physical life in the antitype. We who look through the eye of faith receive eternal life. So you see all the correspondences here. We're in the same boat. In fact, we're really the ones that are in trouble. They were just dying physically. We're in danger of dying eternally, both from the influence of Satan, the old serpent on our lives. And there is a remedy Moses lifted up the serpent back then. Now the Son of Man must be lifted up. Both cases, men must look, one with their physical eye, one with the eye of faith, through a believing eye, and there is life. In one case, temporal physical life. In our case, everlasting, eternal life that is to be given. Now let's examine this a little bit. You, I hope, already have caught on to the fact that this term, lifted up, which Jesus uses twice here in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is a strange term. It's a Greek word, hupsoo. It appears about three places in the Gospel of John, and each time it speaks of what Jesus is talking about here. And when I say, Barry, I, you know, we want to lift you up. I mean, that sounds pretty good. You know, lift me up. The, the boss says down there, you know, I'm going to lift you up. You know, we have the idea that that means to be exalted or to be promoted. And indeed, the word meant that. But it also meant something else to the Jews of Jesus' day. And it's very clear that they understood it meaning something else. It was a, I use the term double entendre. 
Do you know what that is? In the English language, a double entendre is a word that can mean one of two things. Um, if you stumble coming in the front door, I say, have a nice trip. Because you see the word trip may mean a journey or the word trip may mean a stumble. The Reader's Digest, you know, had that little series. I guess they still do. It says, pardon, your slip is showing. Because the word slip may mean an article of women's clothing or it may mean a goof, which is what they then would talk about all the goofs that people had put in the newspaper around the land. That's this term, hoopsolo, clearly is a word that had a double meaning to it. It might mean one thing, and that thing was good, but it might mean another thing, and that thing wasn't so good. I, I've often thought that I could trace its origins back to the days of Joseph. I won't take you back there, but in the days of Genesis, in, in Genesis, in the days of Joseph, when he was rotten away in prison, you remember the story, how he was down there with the butler and the baker, how they both had these dreams, and he interpreted the dreams, the butler was going to be restored back to his place. The baker was going to be executed. How all that came about. If you look closely at that text, you'll see back there in Genesis that in the description it says that Pharaoh lifted up both men. One he lifted up back to his place of authority. The other he lifted up on the gallows. And I believe that's where you can trace the origin of this sort of double meaning to this term to be lifted up. And so if you were a little Jewish kid growing up in, you know, streets of Jerusalem playing with your buddies, you say, well, when I get big, I'm going to be lifted up. And they'd say, yeah, you're going to be lifted up. You're going to be lifted up like the baker, not like the butler. In other words, yes, you're going to be lifted up all right, but you'll be lifted up in the bad way rather than the good way. And you say, well, wait a minute. How do you know? that the people would have understood that. Look on a little later in John chapter 12. In John 12. Verse 32. We often hear this verse quoted out of context. But look carefully at what John goes on to explain here. In John 12 verse 32, Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, and you say, well, well, he must be talking about his exaltation, his glorification, his, you know, being seated on the throne of heaven. Well, he says, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. But look at the explanation in the next verse. This he said, says John the Apostle, signifying what death he should die. In other words, when Jesus was talking about being lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent, you remember, was lifted up on a pole. Now when Jesus said, and I, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. John says he's talking about the way, the mode, the manner of his death. That he's going to be hung up on a pole to die on a Roman torture stake. And I want you to notice in verse 34, the very next verse, that even the people themselves understood it that way. In verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. He lives forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Do you understand the consternation of the people? We've heard out of the law, and the law here seems to be just a reference for the whole Old Testament, the whole book of law. We've heard out of the law 
that the Messiah will last forever. Now, where did they get that idea? Well, they got it from prophecies like David would have a son who would reign on his throne forever and ever. In other words, Messiah, when he comes, he's going to live forever. But you're saying the Son of Man must be lifted up. In other words, they're understanding that Jesus, by these words, is saying that the Son of Man must die. The Son of Man being one of those phrases that they understand to mean speaking of the Messiah. How could that be? They're basically throwing a theological question in the face of our Lord. How can it be that Messiah lives forever, but he must be lifted up? You see, they are giving voice to something that is being expressed by Isaiah the prophet. We just talked a few moments ago about how the Ethiopian eunuch was riding in his chariot, reading Isaiah 53. Puzzled. Who is Isaiah talking about here? Let's go to Isaiah. In fact, back up a couple of verses into Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52. This is actually where the, the, whole, the whole discourse begins. In Isaiah 52, look at verse 13. Here God is speaking of His servant, Jehovah's servant. He's going to come. Isaiah 52, verse 13. God says of his servant, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Would it surprise you that this term exalted is the term in Hebrew, the same one where Pharaoh lifted up? In other words, he will be lifted up, exalted, very high. And you see, there's the good side of the word lifted up. And then he turns right around in verse 14. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was more marred than more than any man, his form more so than the sons of man. Describing his the, the very change of his physical features at his crucifixion. You have both sides of it put together in one place here. And on and on into chapter 53. I trust you're familiar with the chapter of how the one speaking says, is identifying how we did not believe on him. We thought he was a hoax. We thought he was a phony. We thought when he was stricken, he was stricken by God. But now we understand that it was our sin that put him there. That he's bearing our grief, carrying our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. Do you see what's going on? The prophet is describing both things and the Jews couldn't put it together. How can you have a, a Messiah who's going to come and live and reign forever... And have a Messiah who comes and suffers and dies. I mentioned the verse this morning in Sunday school out of Isaiah 53. He was cut off out of the land of the living. In fact, that's so puzzled we learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Essenes actually believed there would be two Messiahs. One who would come to reign and rule, one who would come to die. Because they couldn't see how these two things that are being prophesied, a, live, a Messiah who lives and reigns forever and a suffering, dying Messiah could possibly be reconciled. And that's the question they're asking Jesus. How is it that the Son of Man must be lifted up? We thought the Son of Man, the Messiah, Christ, when He comes, He's going to live forever. But you see the problem? They're saying, how could He be one and the same man? And so Jesus indeed is speaking of himself being lifted up. But those words in the ears of the people mean not one thing but two things. Lifted up to reign, but also lifted up to die. 
what I'm driving at is that Jesus is telling us that there is something significant about not only the fact that he's going to die, but the way that he's going to die. In other words, he's not going to be shot. He's not going to get stabbed in a knife, fight, machete. He's not just going to die. He's going to die a particular way. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must die like that brass snake on a pole in Moses' day. Now, right away, that raises some questions, I'm sure. You say, wait a minute, why a snake of all things? You'll notice the correspondence here. As Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up in the same manner. How is it that the serpent on that pole is representing Christ on a cross? Well, I give you the long explanation or the short one. I thought you'd vote for the short one, so here it is. <laughs> Jesus on the cross did what? In the words of the apostle, he became sin for us. We just sung, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, what wondrous love is this? Because the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. He became sin. Why brass? Well, I gave you the long answer or the short one. Brass, you remember, was the metal out of which that big brass altar was constructed on which sacrifice was altered, offered there at the tabernacle. It reminds us that Christ is not only the Lamb, as we sang Lamb of Glory a moment ago, but He's also the altar. He's also the place where propitiation and reconciliation will be affected. And why? On a pole. What is it about being lifted up on a pole? It's a display of justice. Let's go back to Deuteronomy again. It is the law and this backdrop of the Old Testament that allows us to understand what all of this means. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 18, we have the case of a disobedient son, a stubborn son that won't listen to his mother or his father. I'm not sure they had too many of those back then because what they're to do in verse 19, the father and mother bring them to the elders of the city and say, this guy, he's, uh, notice in verse 20, they say unto the elders of the city, this is our son, he's stubborn, rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away evil from among you and all Israel shall hear in fear. Now I don't know in Israel's history this ever happened. I'm sure just the threat of it was probably enough to take care of things. But I would have you notice two things here. You'll notice that they say of this rebellious, stubborn son. What, what do they say? He's a glutton and a drunkard. It's interesting that Jesus speaks of his ministry in John the Baptist. You recall John the Baptist, he's weird. He's bugs. Dresses in camel skin. Lives out there in the desert. And he said, John the Baptist came preaching the baptism of repentance. And you say, well, he's got a demon. And then the Son of Man came. And you said, what? 
He's a glutton and a wine bibber. Hmm. Worthy to die. That's what that meant. But notice that Israel, most of the time, when they put men to death, stoned them. That's what we usually run into. Stephen infuriated the Sanhedrin. They drug him outside and stoned him to death. But in some cases, verse 22, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death and he be put to death and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt surely or any wise bury him that day For he who is hanged is accursed by God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now you say, well, Brother Rock, you know, you're just reading way too much into this. I see where you're going here. You're saying that this idea of hanging somebody on a tree back there in Deuteronomy, that that's what's really going on with Jesus being on the cross. And, I, you know, that's a stretch. That's a reach. Well, go study the account of the death of Christ, and you'll find that the reason that the bodies were not left on the cross. Oh, I know the human reason was because the next day was the Sabbath and this was a feast day. It was a high day and they weren't to leave the bodies on the cross during this time of festival. But you'll notice that the, the apostles reference this text. Just as in that Old Testament time when a man is hung on a, on a tree, his body was not to be left there overnight. So they did exactly that to Jesus for that reason. The very fulfillment of these things. Now, I can only find two times in Israel's history that they ever hung anybody on a Every time he'd open his mouth to curse them, God filled his mouth with blessing. Very frustrated prophet. But he gave Barak some counsel, his boss. He said, Barak, here's the way to get God to curse his people. Bring out the girls. Bring out the dancing girls. That's exactly what they did. And they brought out the women of Midian and seduced the males of Israel to a drunken orgy down at the table of Baal where they worshipped their god, Baal, where they offered sacrifices to their god. They managed through the seduction of their women to bring the men of Israel down to the very table of Baal and to participate in sacrifice and worship of Baal. And a plague broke out in the midst of the camp of Israel, God's wrath falling upon them. And in the most, um, I said it's going to be a short version, it's hard to tell this story shortly, in the, probably the worst case of bad timing you've ever seen in, the, in your life, one of these Israelite men brings one of these Moabitess women back to camp and goes into the tent with her. And Phinehas, the high priest's son, takes a spear and goes in the tent and stabs them both. And Moses says, take the heads of the twelve tribes. I'm talking about head here, but I'm talking about men who were the heads of the twelve tribes. Take them and hang them before the Lord. Now, there's no indication that these twelve men who were the heads of the twelve tribes were, in fact, guilty of this sin. But they were the responsible parties, you see. They were the representatives of the people. And in order to remove the curse which had befallen the people... You get the principle here? Notice, why do you hang the guy on the tree? The man who's hung on the tree is accursed by God, the law says. Why? So that the land won't be cursed. So that the people won't be cursed. 
In other words, the heads of the twelve tribes are being hung up on a tree before the Lord, on a torture stake, if you will, so that the curse that has befallen the people will in fact fall on them. And that's exactly what they do, and the curse is stayed. The only other time in Israel's history that I can find they ever did this was in the days of David. There is a people, the Gibeonites, with whom Israel had a treaty dating way back to the times of Joshua, that Saul had slain a bunch of them in his zeal for God somehow. We don't have an account of that. But there is a drought upon the land. God's wrath, again, is upon the land. David asks God, what's the problem? God replies, it's because of the Gibeonites. And so David goes to the Gibeonites and says, what's the problem? What do we do to make you happy? They says, take seven of Saul's sons and hang them before the Lord. And they took those seven sons and they hung them on trees, executed them. Again, they weren't personally guilty. But you see the principle, the wrath has befallen, the curse has befallen the land. How do you remove the curse? You take the one who is the representative and you hang him on a tree so that he's cursed and not the people. Well, go back and study that. Study those cases out because they're the only two times that we read of Israel hanging someone on the tree except for, of course, the other time when Moses takes a serpent and hangs it on a pole. I know it says pole in English, but you have to understand that the word pole, tree, wood, they're all generic. They're the same word in Hebrew. It's the generic word for what we would say timber. They hung them on a timber. Might be a tree. Might be a cross. Might be a pole. But it's to hang them up and make a display of the fact that this person represents. He's the responsible party. And he is becoming cursed so that the curse does not fall upon the people. Now, you may be saying, but Brother Mark, now this is really a stretch. What you're really saying here is that Jesus was hung up around that cross to become a curse. And you're saying that that's actually what was going on in Deuteronomy. When they take someone and they put them on a tree and put them up on and hang them before the Lord, they're cursed by God. Well, no, I'm not saying that. Paul said that. I'm not making that connection. Paul made that connection. Go to Galatians 3. Verses 10 through 12, he speaks of the fact that no man can obey the law, and because of that, we're all under the curse of the law. The law curses everyone who does not do it, who does not do it perfectly, who does not do it continually, and do all of the law. And therefore, because none of us have kept the law, we all are under that curse. But look at chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, and now we know where it was written, by the way, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. That's quoting Deuteronomy 21. That's the verse we read a moment ago back in the law. Christ has become the curse. Now you understand why it's a serpent hanging on that tree, on that pole? It's not just sin, it represents that curse that befell the serpent. 
And he bears the curse in order to remove the curse. Notice the language of Paul here. He's become a curse for us that the curse be removed from us. He's not personally responsible. He's not personally guilty of these sins. But he, as our representative, as our head, if you will, just as the heads of the twelve tribes were hung up there at Bel Peor, now Christ, as the head of his people, bears the curse that belong to them. What wondrous love is this, O my soul, that Christ, the Lord of bliss, should bear the dreadful curse for my soul. But may I close by saying that in both the type and the antitype, you'll notice that there was a provision the type, the snake on the pole, the antitype, Christ on the cross. But there was a means of receiving what God had provided. In the type, it was a look. In the antitype, it's a look. It's a look. Now, I want to point out to you that two ideas then are destroyed by that very fact, that there is something the sinner, the snake-bitten one, must do. There are two ideas that are destroyed. Number one, the idea of universalism. That because Christ died on the cross, everybody's going to be saved, everybody's going to go to heaven. No, back there in Israel, the ones that were bitten by the snakes, they were all dying. Who lived? Those who looked. Now, any of them could look. But only those that look were healed. In the antitype, only those who believe are saved. And secondly, it overthrows the idea of a fatalistic passivity. Well, you know, God wants me to be saved, I'll be saved. I'll just go to heaven regardless of whether I look or not. No. All who look will be healed, but only those who look shall be healed. In other words, you must look. If you would have life, you must look. I'm afraid here at this point, the Arminian-Calvinist debate over how many Christ died for misses the whole point of what Jesus is talking about here. Because we're focusing on quantity rather than on a quality. It obscures this whole thing that what is being said to us is that anyone may look. Anyone. There's not a certain number of snake-bitten folks and this many can look and no more. Anyone may look and be healed. There's sufficiency for as many as needed. But only. There's efficiency only for those who look. Only they live. Do, Do you see my point? I know that we in in Calvinistic circles, we often look at this and say, well, yeah, but, you know, Moses lifted up the serpent in the midst of Israel. It was just Israel's snake-bitten folks that could look and live. So it's just Israel. It's sort of a picture of the elect there. But that's exactly the point. Now John goes into John 3.16. It's not just Israel. In this case, the Antitype doesn't just speak to snake-bitten folks of Israel, to the accursed of Israel. It's the cursed out there in the world. God so loved the world. You see, the type was only for those cursed of Israel. The antitype will reach far beyond 
the borders of Israel. In other words, the question is uh, only this. Are you accursed? What I mean by that, are you the cursed offspring of the cursed devil? You say, well, what are you talking about here? I mean, you know, I've got my dignity. I've got my self-respect. Well, Jesus, you know, one of his favorite ways of answering his opponents would say, oh, you generation of vipers. You know what that means? It means offspring of snakes. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. That's how he characterized those who refused to believe on him. You're a bunch of little snakes. Poisonous snakes. In fact, in John chapter 8, where they are arguing with him about their genealogy, they're saying, Abraham's our father. We've never been in bondage. Jesus says, I think I know who your daddy is. You don't look a thing like Abraham. Oh, you, you know, you may have the physical features of Abraham, but spiritually speaking, you don't look a thing like Abraham. I know who your daddy is. I know exactly who you look like. You're of your father, the devil, and his lust you will do. He was a liar. He loved lies from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. And you love lies, and you're about to murder me, the prince of life. You're a bunch of children. Spiritually speaking, you understand. We, we sometimes talk about this, we're all under the universal fatherhood of God. Nonsense. Lost man in this world is nothing but a little snake. A poisonous viper. Cursed by what he is and cursed in what he does. You say, how terrible to talk about us that way. Why do you suppose it was a serpent? Moses put on the boat. You see, to take our place, he had to take our condition. And you say, well, I'm not a little snake. Then you don't have a Savior, my friend. If you're not the offspring of Satan, spiritually speaking, if you're not of the devil, then I have no Savior. For you. If you're not a snake, I don't have a Savior who can save folks that aren't snakes and snake-bitten. Oh, my friend, if that's exactly who and what you are, I've got some hope for you. Oh, man, it's time to eat, isn't it? <laughs> this look Oh, my. Look. Just look. It's a look. That's all it is. The old Puritans used to say, if you can see it, you got it. And just see it. You say, what are you talking about, preacher, if I can see it? If you can look at that cross and see it, you got it. John Newton not that one. John Newton back here in the corner, by the way, but the older one. He knew. That old slave trader. So wicked men didn't even want to get on the same boat with him. 
became a slave himself to some Africans down in Africa, finally escaped them, taken on board by another slave trip, the ship being taken back to England, got in the middle of a storm, thought he was going to die, and got down on his knees and pitching deck and cried out to God for mercy. He was so shocked by the words, the words that his mother had taught him, and oh my, let this be a, a good encouragement to you ladies, words that his mother had taught him. I believe she died when he was about five or six years old, but she has impregnated his mind with the scriptures. He said, in fact, when he said the words, God have mercy on me, he says, what am I saying? Where are these words coming from? And he said, all of this scripture that his mother had taught him came flooding back upon his soul, crying out to God. He said, men, unless God has mercy on us, we'll die tonight. He said, what am I saying? And later... He would write that wonderful poem. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, until an object caught my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. He seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt. It plunged me in despair. I saw my sins, his blood had shed, and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but all my tears were vain. Where could this guilty soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou might live. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Was blind, but now. I see. You know the rest of it, don't you? Do you see now what Newton was talking about when he says, I was blind, but now I see. I see. I see. It's just that look. It's that simple. Just a look. But oh, what a look it is. Because you see, it's more than just a glance. So you say, oh, of course I see it. It's a look that recognizes something. It recognizing, it recognizes who He is. This is the Son of God. Dying in my place. It recognizes what He's doing. It recognizes who I am. That I ought to be there. I'm the snake. But oh, it's a receiving look. Because I see it's a believing look. It's a look that says, yes, He's my Savior. He's my head. The head dying for the body. The head being a curse so that I might not bear the curse. And it's a transforming look. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. And how will it happen? It'll happen in a look. In a look. 
In Him, said John in the first chapter, speaking of this Word, this eternal Word that was with God and was God, in Him was life. There's where life is. It's in Him. Oh, can you see? I must close. I want to read you. Bonnie brought a bunch of these. If you'd like to have one, they're stacked down here on the front pew. It's a little paper written by a high school age boy about 17 years old. I saw it first on the internet, and Bonnie, I think you picked it up there too uh, a few months ago, but it's quite good. 17-year-old boy who, by the way, died two months later after writing this. was the last thing like this he wrote. His name was Brian Moore. It's called The Room. In that place, between wakefulness and dreams, I found myself in the room. There were no distinguishing features save for the one wall covered with small index card files. They were like the ones in libraries that list titles by author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files, which stretched from floor to ceiling and right to left as far as the eye could see, had very different headings. As I walked up to the wall of files, the first to catch my attention was one that read, People I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards, and I quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized the names written on each one. And then, without being told, I knew exactly where I was. This lifeless room with its small files was a crude catalog system for my entire life. The actions of my every moment, big and small, were written in a detail my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity mixed with horror stirred within me as I randomly opened files and explored their content. Some brought joy and sweet memories. Others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed. The titles range from common everyday things to the not-so-common books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness, things I have yelled at my brothers and sisters, others I couldn't laugh at, things I have done in anger, things I have muttered under my breath at my parents. I never ceased to be surprised by the contents. Often there were far more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I had hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the life I had lived. Could it be possible that I had, in my 17 years, time to write each of these thousands or millions of cards, but each card confirmed the truth. Each card was written in my own handwriting. Each card was signed with my own signature. And when I pulled out the file marked Songs I Have Listened To, I realized that the files grew to contain their contents. The cards were packed tightly, and yet after two or three yards, I hadn't found the end of the file. I shut it, ashamed not so much by the quality of the music, but more by the vast amount of time I knew that the file represented when I came to the file marked Lustful Thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled the file out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think such a moment had been recorded. A feeling of humiliation and anger ran through my body. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. I have to destroy them. And in an insane frenzy, I yanked the file out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty it and burn the cards. But as I took the file at one end and be began pounding it on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. 
I became desperate and pulled out a card only to find it as strong as steel when I tried to tear it. Defeated and utterly hopeless, I returned the file to its slot. Leaning my forehead against the wall, I let out a self-pitying sigh. And that was when I saw it. The file bore the name, People I Have Shared the Gospel With. The handle was brighter than those around it, new or almost unused. I pulled on its handle a small box not more than three inches long fell into my hands. I could count the cards it contained on one hand. And then the tears came. I began to weep, sob so deep that the hurt started in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and cried. I cried out of shame and from the overwhelming shame of it all. The rows of file shelves swirled in my tear-filled eyes. No one must ever, ever know of this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. And then, as I looked through my tears, I saw him enter the room. No, please, not him. Not here. Anyone but him. I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. The few times that I looked at his face, I saw such sadness that it tore my heart. He seemed to intuitively go to the worst boxes. Why did he have to read every one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with pity in his eyes, but this was a pity that didn't anger me. I dropped my head, covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over and put his arm around me. He could have said so many things, but he didn't say a word. He just wept with me. Then he got up and walked back to the wall of the files. And starting at one end of the room, he took out a file and one by one began to sign his name over mine on each card. No, I shouted, rushing to him. All I could find to say was, no, no, as I pulled the card from him. His name shouldn't be on these cards. But there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written in blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly, but the next instant it seemed I heard him close the last file and walk back to my side. He placed his hand on my shoulder and said, It is finished. I stood up and he led me out of the room. There was no lock on the door, for there were still cards to be written. The Gospel... Oh, I remember my old friend, E.W. Johnson, pounding this in my head years ago. The gospel is blood redemption and substitutionary atonement. Oh, there it is. Do you understand now what I mean? It's just a look, but oh, what a look. The transforming nature of that look. When I see, when I see, Oh, I see the glory, the beauty of a cross. And Paul will go on to say that while the world has absolutely no use for Christ, the cross to the Jew is a stumbling block to the Gentile. It's foolishness. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men look at him as a criminal hanging on that cross. And I see a Savior. 
dying in my place. Do you see? It's all in a look. But oh, you who have seen, you can never be the same, can you? Can't look at sin, sort of like what's being illustrated here. Can't look at sin the same way. Can't look at myself the same way. Oh, I can't look at Christ the same way. Do you know Him? Do you have life? May God be pleased to open your eyes that you see. Let's pray. Help us, Father. Help us open blind eyes. Eyes that are shut tight against the light. Open, Father, those eyes. Cause us to see. Cause us to acknowledge. Cause us to comprehend. May we see. Thank you for Jesus. Father, may we never get over what our eyes have seen. We stand transfixed, gazing at that cross. May we never get over it. Thank you for Jesus, for him coming and bearing that dreadful curse for our soul. In Jesus' name we ask it.